Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist and now a health coach based in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. I started this podcast in 2020 to help you live a better life. In fact, I hope this podcast is the best 45 minutes of your week. Today, I am so proud to introduce you to the delightful and social media savvy, Dr. Mary Claire Haver. She's the author of The New Menopause and The Galveston Diet. You'll get to meet her right after this. I love trying new recipes. I've always been the gal who sees one in a magazine online, and I can tell by looking. Like, I I really don't make a mistake about it because I know what's involved. Thanks to RalstonFamilyFarms.com, there's some new recipes I'm going to try, and I think you should too. You're thinking, Ralston Family Farms, the people you've been talking about on your podcast since 2020, (laughs) they have a recipe section? Oh, my friends, yes. And this month, I'm looking at some new ones. Guys, I'm crazy. This is my new flavor profile, the kimchi fried rice. It says, are you craving some comfort food? This can be ready in 30 minutes, guys. It's got golden rice. Check. Use it all the time. Kimchi, carrots, peas, and egg. Cook it in 30 minutes. It's great for a weeknight meal. It can be a simple and delicious meal, but that's just one of the things. I'm looking at Nature's Blend Hummus Bowl. Okay. Southwest Sausage Rice Grit Breakfast. All right. Jambalaya. Wonderful. Yeah, those are some of the things you get from RalstonFamilyFarms.com. Yes, this is also the website where I want you to order the rice because that's what we're doing here. We're selling rice, but we're selling the concept that they make rice easy to prepare, delicious, and so many options. And guys, it's one of the most affordable staples you can have in your meals. So my beef, butter, bacon, and eggs that I eat, one of the things I eat, the carbs, it's rice. You can too, RalstonFamilyFarms.com. Those of you loyal listeners to my podcast know I've been talking about DogTalkTV.com. That's a website where you can go right now and you can buy some books to teach your family about the responsibility of pet ownership. The author of many of those books is a Little Rock resident, and she's very generous to the dogs and all the animals of the world, but especially here in central Arkansas. Pat Becker Wallace is the author of many of those books. She's had an award-winning PBS show. She works very hard in central Arkansas for different charities, but especially the dog rescues. So we know that the charities, the dog charities, animal charities, often get county and city money, but often the rescues do not. They are no-kill shelters, and things are a little different. So she works really hard to raise money for these groups. DogTalkTV.com is where you can buy some books, and it benefits the local rescues. But this is the other thing she wants to remind you of. Just this month, just today, because it's a day that ends in Y, donate to a rescue near you. In Central Arkansas, we have Central Arkansas Rescue Effort Care, and we also have Out of the Woods. Wherever you're listening from, I would love to hear the charities and the rescues that you can help in your area. You can save a dog's life today. For more information, go to dogtalktv.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. 
Okay, kids, we've got your mom's gynecologist on. Isn't that what you say on your social media? Especially when I'm clapping back at. Oh, I know, girl. I know a certain when it demographic. Comes out. <laughs> You're right. I am, you know, when a 25 year old, well meaning, usually personal trainer esque type Always. person comes after right. me, you know, I try to explain who I am to their mothers. <laughs> I love it. And you, and it's often. It is so the root of this is now we all know you from the Galveston diet. We thought that's why you were famous. And then you you just made a big splash on the TikTok that the young the young whippersnappers use. And then um I get you because I don't I don't want the Chinese government to know all my personal secrets, but I'd love for uh, Mark Zuckerberg too, because I'm clearly on Instagram where I also see you and you also have that message. So is it what was your first pushback? Was it from Galveston diet or the fact that you were telling people you can get bioidentical hormone replacement even if you've had cancer or something else you've said. For, you know, my first kind of toe in the water with social media was talking about nutrition and menopause and really shying away from all the talk about calories and trying to help women understand that this calorie counting is not really serving us anymore at this age. It's not really working for anyone. And that's where people who have built empires off of programs around calorie counting really came after me. I'm from the intermittent fasting world, so I get a lot of pushback. In fact, um, I was asked to speak at a big group recently, and they said, it was like making New Year's resolutions, and they said, don't go into the whole intermittent fasting thing. And I went, then I can't speak because my whole life, my good health and everything, they said, it's just so offensive and divisive. And I went, "What? what is offensive and divisive about putting your fork down for a few hours? Maybe you know, until tomorrow. I, but that our, our country now, I think, is so divided, Dr. Haver, into the, by everything's so binary. You're either this or this. Well, can't you admit, though, can't the personal trainers admit now that maybe we're onto something, maybe counting calories isn't the best way for a woman who's approaching 35, 40? How did you figure out that message? Well, really, I had to bang my head against the wall for months. Um, and it was my husband, actually, who, you know, I was menopausal. And when my brother passed away in 2015, I went into this deep depression. Mm. And in that depression, all exercise and nutrition went out the window, what I thought was good nutrition. And I gained probably 15, 20 pounds through that grief process. And then when the grief started to lift, I realized I was menopausal and I had this new abdominal fat that had mm. never been there before. Okay, well, let's go back to the tricks and all the things I used to do to get it off. And I could not. I mean, it got to the point where I was calorie restricting to maybe 900 calories a day, like really dangerous, like horrible. Yikes. And, but I was like, this has to work. I've told this for page, to patients for 20 years. This is not like, it, and I checked my thyroid. I did all the, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. Not realizing what it was happening to my body with age and menopause combined. So and grief, wouldn't you say grief and, grief, and cortisol? Yes, all of it. Okay. You can't isolate these things. So, right. so my husband caught me like I would get up at night to pee because menopause, mm -hmm. and I'd put weigh myself. You know, I was like weigh myself multiple Aww. times a day. I was setting my my attitude based on what the scale said for the day, and he kind of quietly pointed out that my children were watching, and they were both teenagers at the time, and. <sighs> And that really hit home. And he was yeah. going on a trip overseas. And I said, when you get back, because it was going to be a few weeks, 
you're going to have the wife you deserve. You know, I'm going to look X amount away. And, and it was all vanity. It was not about health at that point. And he said, I love you. I don't care what you look like. I think you look great, but you're, this is not healthy. Mm -hmm. Like you are in this mental, like you're a scientist, figure this out. What do you keep telling the girls? If something's not working, you must change the approach to the problem. That's right. So that kind of like shocked me into, okay, I, I got to look at this differently. So, you know, being type A connected to a big, large academic institution for medicine, I called up all my patients who were nutritionists, <laughs> who were dietitians, you know, PhDs, and said, what the heck is going on in menopause? Mm -hmm. Why can't I lose this weight? Why are my patients not losing weight? Like this is going on. This is before social media. And they were like, well, you're on to something. You know, we've got a lot of studies in the very elderly and we know about 25-year-old athletes, but we have to extrapolate between the two. So we know this happens in menopause. Inflammation goes up, insulin resistance goes up, cholesterol goes up. I was like, oh, my cholesterol is not my fault. It's because I'm menopausal. Like, oh my God, you know? <laughs> and so it just brought me, they sent me all these articles and brought me down this rabbit hole after rabbit hole of nutrition and inflammation and nothing talked about calories, nothing. It was all about the quality of your nutrition, anti-inflammatory nutrition, Mark Matson's work on fasting with neurodementia. And that's where my plan kind of started solidifying. I was like, what if I stopped counting calories? What if I just so How scarily- How was that? Oh my God. You? It was like everything I had known my whole life. It was what I was taught in medicine. Literally, I grew up in the era, I was taught in the era of, if you're fat, it's your fault. Oh, I hate it's that. all about willpower. Oh. You have a- eating. I was so fat phobic. I was so prejudiced against mm. people with weight problems. And I mean, it makes me sick today to think mm -hmm. of that. And that mm -hmm. now that I, and I went back to school at Tulane, you know, I took their culinary medicine course, got certified, really? blew That's my mind. Awesome. I felt like called to do it. Like, awesome. I, this is my path. This is my passion, but I need more data. I need, I need some gravita behind me on mm -hmm. this. So I did the only thing I could do rather than dropping out of medicine and going back to college, you know, right. to get cert. So I got certified in culinary medicine, which was really the greatest thing I've ever done. And wow. why every physician doesn't have to do this as part yeah. of their training. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I hope we're headed in that direction. So I took all of that and, you know, I made a little program for my patients and myself and it was working and everyone was happy. Then I started talking about it on social media. Boom. Oh, then you were a target. That's where, you know, but I just stuck by my guns because my patients were telling me it was working and these followers were telling me it was working and thousands and thousands of people were starting to do it on social media. And I was just getting all this feedback that this is actually working for us. Because uh, don't you think really part of the pushback too is clinical or nutritionists are, I mean, they're paid for by big food and big pharma. So they're, they're telling at the hospital, they're giving them jello and low fat milk. And there are no, my, my daughter recently came back from Thailand, was very sick, ended up having typhoid fever. And she is kind of a pescatarian, which she's 25. So I guess it's okay if she is at that age, but we had to buy her, you know, I had to have food prepared here at my home to take to her because there was nothing that they said, well, we've got margarine. Like that was a good thing. So, right. I mean, aren't, aren't you kind of fighting the battle amongst your own peers and the people that you so, live amongst? 
Fortunately, at the university I was at, aside from the people who work for the dietary component at the hospital, these are people who were PhDs doing active research, mostly in the elderly, on protein synthesis and muscle oh, retention. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it was blowing my mind. You were lucky. You were lucky. I was lucky. Yeah. And my daughter, remember, my daughter just graduated from college with a degree in nutrition science. So talk about being held accountable for everything I say on the internet about nutrition. My daughter was, you know, couldn't wait to call me out on anything. So is nutrition science then allows them to become dietitians? Yes. So now the nutrition science degree, really it's hard to get a job just with that. Most of the people who get that degree go on to get a master's for 18 months and they work in a hospital and they, they, to become a registered dietitian, they have to take another certification exam. My daughter looked at all that about halfway through her undergrad and that was her path. And she said, I think I want to go to medical school. And I said, okay, well, are you going to have the precursors, the prereqs you need for it? And she had to take a couple of extra classes, but she pretty much had it. She said, let me just take the MCAT, see how I do. And if I don't, like it's playing hopscotch on a Sunday, it's more than just take the MCAT and see how I do. I come from a gifted family and I'll, uh, well, I'm sure she aced it and well, she's in med school now. She's in med school. Yeah. (laughs) So she skipped the RD and you know, her plan was if she didn't get into medical school, which half of kids don't, she would go ahead and finish her RD, you know, apply for that program, get it and then go to medical school, you know, and then reapply. But she got Tell it. me, what, what is uh, culinary medicine? We have a culinary school here in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'd love to explore so that. It was the original brainchild of a doctor, um, Dr. Harlan at Tulane, who's an internal medicine doctor, who yeah. was so interested in nutrition as a science, you know, and in a lot of college programs, and my daughter was really picky when she looked, the nutrition degree either is more of a Betty Crocker, like right. big food processing, you go work for craft or you end up Mm -hmm. in a large kitchen versus biomedical science of nutrition. And LSU, where she ended up going, gave her a fantastic scholarship and it was very biomedically based. You know, she didn't want to spend a lot of time in kitchens. She did some, it's part of the process. But when Dr. Harlan made this program, he knew that physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners were so desperate for nutrition learning. He developed this program and it's about it took me about a year and a half to complete it. And it's, you know, online coursework, learning all about the science of nutrition and biomedical science and how, you know, allergies and, and I mean, oh, it was just incredible. Yeah. And then we had to, I had to go to New Orleans for labs and then San Antonio for labs where we worked in kitchens side by side with dietitians wow. and chefs to learn how to teach our patients how to prepare food, you know, and really learn what's going on in the kitchen in people's homes and how to, how to help guide them. It was invaluable. Is boudin sausage included in any of the culinary? I mean, New Orleans culinary medicine is different from what we get in Little Rock. Yeah. Um, Boudin is um, something you should enjoy in moderation. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Should not be a staple of your diet. Okay. So what were the first things where the blinders were lifted and you started realizing, you know what? It's not calories, as Dr. Fung says, Dr. Bickman. I mean, we don't know how really the body processes a calorie. So- Let's take that off the table. What was your first thing that you attacked that you thought, I think this may work and help you lose the weight? Um, so I was More focused protein. on the weight loss and 
Okay. I quickly realized that I needed to lower inflammation, that why we were gaining right. weight despite no changes in diet or exercise had more to do with chronic inflammation. That was when chronic inflammation's happening in the background because of menopause and aging. So, mm-hmm. you know, and those two are interrelated. But what could I do to lower those levels? And maybe the weight would follow. It looked like in the studies that would happen. So I looked at what in my diet am I eating that is really anti-inflammatory? The nuts, the seeds, the legumes, the greens, the, you know, all of the whole grains, the the healthy stuff. And then what am I eating that's really pro-inflammatory? The processed food, the carbohydrates that are processed, you know, and really focusing on those nutrients, really avoiding, not avoiding, but, you know, limiting, being mindful of the ones that are anti-inflammatory and loading up on the earth our pro-inflammatory loading up on the anti-inflammatory really started turning the needle for me and just getting away from that caloric mindset. I was eating all this low-cal, low-fat stuff out of bags and boxes that was horrifically pro-inflammatory, but it was low-cal, so it had to work, right? And when I learned to stop focusing on the scale and more about health, And all the studies that are showing that weight and BMI are not great indicators of chronic health. I, when I developed my menopause clinic, I bought a in-body scanner so I could measure muscle mass, visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, and really have honest conversations with people. I can't tell you the joy in patients when I tell them how much muscle they have. And they've been told they're obese for years when I'm like, no, you just have a lot of muscle. You don't have a lot. You know, your fat's fine. (laughs) That's awesome. So how nervous are you about the GLP-1 agonists then that are reducing our ability to retain the muscle? So um, I'm very nervous. Um, I think that there are important medications. I'm really excited about the improvements coming down the line for the side well, effects. cardiovascular I think health, things like that. For some patients, it's life-saving. You know, we have to look at risk-benefit ratio for everyone. What makes me nervous are people are not using them properly. They're being given them, hey, you need to lose 10 pounds real fast. Here, do this. When you are not followed properly and given good advice and a a reasonable plan to hang on to that muscle while you lose the fat. Oh, so you can hang on to the muscle. Yeah, you absolutely can. Healthy weight loss includes about 10 to 20% muscle mass loss. We expect that. So I always body scan a patient before she goes on it or we just see where her baseline is. I'm like, okay, listen, you've got plenty. Many obese patients have great muscle because they're putting on that weighted blanket every day to go do their life, their life activities, and their muscles are responding in turn. So I'm like, look, you're at 130, 120% muscle mass for your age. That's going to come off as this weighted blanket gets lighter. That's okay. But we want to keep you in a healthy muscle range where I get really nervous and where they have sarcopenic obesity or skinny fat, where they have tons of fat, lots of visceral fat, and very little muscle. That is not a patient who's a great start for Ozempic right away. We really need to help them gain some muscle before we start, you know, doing whatever Ozempic does on multiple levels that ends up for a lot of patients with muscle mass loss. Now, I have seen patients who've held on to every bit of muscle, but it is work. They're eating the protein. They're doing the resistance training. But I'm seeing a lot of fly-by-night patients who are being given Ozempic and, and Monjuro and all these meds, the GLP ones, for the wrong reason, for cosmetic, what I call cosmetic right. weight loss. Right. Kardashian weight loss. You said it. Well, I mean, it's it's been said. I mean, it, mm-hmm. and I, I, when Chelsea Handler, somebody who I don't prescribe to anything she says, but I've seen her on some reels that have said, she goes, my agent sent it to me in the mail. She goes, I was just told, take this. 
because that it, it was back when Hollywood remember, you know, they had to lose the 10 or 20 pounds to stay with, you know, whoever they were MGM or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. Lucille Ball was with. So it's the same philosophy. It's just a different group of people under a different name, but it's, you keep this image to help us keep pushing you and let's all get along. And, and I, you know, I appreciate her candor to say, I wouldn't, you know, or maybe she took it a couple of weeks or something because they so blindly follow their leaders. And, and that's just the philosophy of that again, which is a fat phobic society and all that. Okay. So let's talk about the woman who's listening, who's saying, am I skinny fat? And she doesn't have an in-body scale. How, how can she figure that out? Sure. One way, it's not perfect, but the next best thing is the waist tip ratio. And so you can do this at home where you take a tape measure and you measure the smallest part of your waist. So wherever that hourglass is for you, if you don't have an hourglass, many of us don't, or you go out, just pick your belly button. You're just going to pick a point that you can get to every time. That's always going to be the same. And then you're going to measure around your waist and then around your hips. And you're going to divide the waist by the hips. So waist on top, hip on bottom. Okay. If your waist hip ratio is less than about 0.7, 0.8 maybe for a woman, you likely do not have a tremendous amount of visceral fat. Okay. The fat that you have is mostly subcutaneous and it's probably not, you know, of a of metabolic concern. If you are above one, then the chances are much greater that you have elevated amounts of visceral fat that are affecting your risk of chronic disease. Now, oh, I get all these comments. What if I have a diastasis? What if it, I'm like, you want to do it first thing in the morning when your bladder's empty, when you're not bloated, you know, be sensible about how you do it. But outside of you going to get a DEXA scan or an in-body scan, which are expensive, this is an easy way. We have our students in the program track their progress, not with the scale, but with their waist to ratio. So I'd heard once, and this may be more for men, because, you know, men will get the pot belly that, and I guess women do too, but, but not like a man will get like a hard, you know, he looks like he's in his second or third trimester and, mm-hmm. you know, things are getting close. That is visceral it. fat. Okay. So I heard once that if you can pinch an inch that's really almost a good sign. It's when you have, and I, I'm, I might not be using the right term, the hard thump that you can't get to it, that you're in trouble. Now I so, might have oversimplified that. Subcutaneous fat, which is the fat under our skin, is the pinchable fat. You can squeeze okay. it. All yeah. Right. And it's, you know, it's, yeah. I'm squeezing mine right now. Yeah. Um, 28% body fat is normal in a woman, you know, is, is still in a very healthy range. Okay, good, good. And so- I just say you've got great curves, rock them when I see that in a patient. <laughs> right. Now, when we when I can see the visceral fat is, yeah, I'm like, this is, but yeah, when the abdomen protrudes like that, and most of the time they'll be like, yeah, I mean, I've always kind of had a little jiggle around mm-hmm. my hips, but now like this top part I'm, I'm pressing here um, mm-hmm. is starting to protrude and this is new. My pants are tighter. This is all new and I've never had this before. So are you seeing then, because you know, these young girls that have these abdomens and then the facial hair, we start wondering about PCOS. But then I see postmenopausal women. Now, I know ovarian cancer is often one of the symptoms is the big belly. But let's say that person doesn't have ovarian cancer, but she's postmenopausal and she still has the abdomen. What are you looking at there? What are you worried about? Um, I'm looking for visceral fat there, you know, and multiple things are driving that. 
our relative levels of, of androgens do rise because our their binding globulin decreases. Um, our um, inflammation markers start rising. Our cholesterol goes up on its own. Your insulin resistance, your HOMA IR score, it's all related. And you end up in this almost inflammatory uh, traffic circle that you have yeah. a hard time getting out of where yeah. the, the increasing visceral fat leads to more inflammation, which then drives more visceral fat, which makes your insulin resistance worse. And you just spin and spin and spin. So what comes first in that? Is it the drop in, because we call it estrogen dominance, but it's really more of a ratio between progesterone and estrogen, right? So, so we're talking estrogen- about menopause. Okay. First of all, estrogen dominance, I'm a board certified OBGYN. That is a marketing term, not a medical term. Oh, tell me more. So estrogen dominance was created probably by well someone well-meaning who was trying to describe a condition where you don't ovulate regularly, for example, PCOS or perimenopause. Okay. Right. So when in a normal ovulatory cycle in a healthy woman, we have an estrogen surge mid-cycle and then Mm -hmm. a progesterone surge after Mm -hmm. ovulation. Mm -hmm. So, and that's like an EKG every month. Boom, boom, Okay. boom. Then when we, so, but say you have PCOS like I did. That you did have PCOS, mm-hmm. yeah. I was PCOS, I was a thin PCOS. I was gonna say, ovulatory, would never have a period, had trouble getting pregnant, had to do, yeah, fertility drugs, the whole nine yards. Well, we okay, we need to come back to that, but go ahead on the so the I know a lot this. about this, and wow. so, so I think someone well meaning were like, well, you're making more estrogen relative to your progesterone because you're not ovulating, right? And estrogen levels rarely go above three or 400. Um, and that, and then you're not offsetting it with progesterone each month because you're not ovulating. So these and ovulatory conditions, there's multiple root causes of that. So like estrogen dominance is not a root cause term. Not like I'm trying to understand like, but it's kind of been taken over by the alternative medicine practitioners and people who are really not using evidence to sell their supplements, to cure these conditions. So when I medically, I never say you have estrogen dominance. I will say you're not ovulating regularly. Because you're perimenopausal, you're, you're in the stages of ovarian okay. failure, because you have insulin resistance, which is leading to your PCOS. That is the cause of, ins- you know, right. insulin resistance is the cause of PCOS. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about treatment and management, I, you know, we go back to the root cause, perimenopause, we give you back hormones, PCOS, we got a lot of options. You know, we either treat the symptoms, treat the, treating the root cause of PCOS is nutrition. So, right. You know, and people don't like that either. I was on a Facebook group once and I, th- and my, I think I got kicked out because she was saying she needed help to find a provider because she had PCOS and she needed nutri- no, didn't need nutritionist at that point. She wanted to do something else. And I said, would you consider intermittent fasting because it's an insulin resistance issue? And she said, you have violated the terms of this group. She goes, we all know there's not a cure for um the condition PCOS or whatever she was saying. And I got booted out of there, but Dr. Bickman, I know I've heard him say, and other people, Dr. Hyman and other people have said it's, it's too much insulin. And so we can Mm -hmm. say it's reversible, right? Yeah. I mean, you can, it's like type two diabetes. You, you will always be predisposed to it. We just take away the, the triggers, you know, and Nutrition will go a lot. Women will start ovulating if they lose 10% of their body weight simply because if they're obese and PCOS, simply because they're lowering their insulin resistance from the weight loss.
Hey, friends, I want to get you up to date on something I was dealing with last month and tell you what I found out. I went to compounding at cornerstone.com. I actually went inside the physical address of Cornerstone Pharmacy here in Little Rock, the one on Rodney Parham in the Simmons Bank building. I walked inside. I got the saliva test. Brittany Marsh, the owner, helped me pick out the one that was best for me. And I did the saliva test and found out, yes, in fact, my uh, estrogen is low. My progesterone was really kind of high, which is fine. And my testosterone, meh, it's just meh. So the reason it's important that you do this is because we say in the health space, test, don't guess. You don't know what's going on until you take the test. And the saliva test, what you do is you can go on their website. All this information is in the show notes and you get 20% off at checkout with these tests. If you do the Dutch, if you do the saliva, the saliva can even do cortisol. I chose not to because I feel like mine's fine. But if you have any suspicions about your hormones, both men and women, this is the time to do it. Pull the trigger, people, and get to the bottom of it. Brittany now is helping me work with my provider to get more estrogen, estradiol replacement, but I wouldn't have known if I didn't take the test. You can do the same thing, compounding at cornerstone.com. I love going to the website for marlsgate.com. Marlsgate.com, it's hard to even define it in just a few sentences, but it is this historic property in Scott, Arkansas, a small community about 15 minutes from downtown Little Rock. And on this property that was built in the 1850s, the original home is there the pecan orchards, the acres of beautiful property tenderly, lovingly cared for now by the Talbot family, just the third family of owners with this property. And they bought it in 2017. And wow, what they are doing in restoring it and keeping it up. And it's impressive. And not just Marlsgate, but it's everything really the Talbot family what they're doing in this community. Bo is a hustler and so is Martha Ellen. And that means you can see what they're doing with their heirloom foods, the culinary arts, the lodging they have by land and water. I love the restaurant, Scott Station. We're crazy about that restaurant. But for the rest of you, if you're wondering what Marlsgate is, it could be the perfect event location for your treasured event because this isn't just a venue this is somebody's home and it turns into a memory that's talked about for generations find out more by going to the website marlsgate.com so then tell me i mean riddle me this how's a skinny person then how does a skinny person have insulin resistance and how are you measuring it this is my metformin (laughs) I'm 55 years old. I have insulin resistance. If I don't take that, I will be pre-diabetic. So how does a skinny person? So for me, I could not eat less. I was very thin in medical school, college, when I was trying to get pregnant. You know, it was not because of an obesity issue that was overriding my body's capability. I was born, I was gestational diabetic, you know, with a broken receptor Mm -hmm. in my body Mm -hmm. that binds Mm -hmm. insulin. So Mm -hmm. I need a lot more to get the job done. Mm -hmm. I have to accept that. So I did the diet as much as I could. I did metformin to get pregnant. I did, 
I stayed on metformin the first like 12 weeks of pregnancy, first three months to decrease my risk of miscarriage. Uh, and this was the best. Now, my kids are 23 and 20. So this was the best knowledge at the time. Yeah. I stayed. I just suppressed it. I did my best with diet and I stayed on oral contraceptives until, you know, late perimenopause wow. to suppress. And it, I, I did well on birth control pills. I did great. My acne was done. You know, I could function. I was much less aggressive because of the high androgens. I, you know, I was happy and I stayed on it. And that's how I treated most of my patients until, you know, until I, and I really worked on the diet part, especially if, if excess fat mass was a problem. So, but again, I didn't have the background of, I was still saying work out more, eat less, you right. know, back in most of my practice. So, yeah. Right. The blinders were still on. Oh okay. yeah. Now explain to me then how the ovaries are involved and testosterone, the androgen, high mm -hmm. androgen levels are involved and make women anovulatory during this monthly cycle. So the, the androgens rising is secondary to the insulin levels. So, you know, the high insulin levels the, and the IGF-1 insulin growth like, like growth factor one, there are receptors on the ovary. So when we suppress ovulation, we have a higher incidence of the, so the precursor to estradiol is testosterone. And so we aromatize testosterone in, right. in the ovary and in our fat cells and in some of the end tissues from testosterone gets aromatized to estradiol. That's how okay. we make it. And the majority is made in the ovary. Okay? okay. So when we're not allowed to ovulate, we have a buildup of estrogen that's not being counted. You're not getting that drop in the second okay. half of the cycle. So we're just converting the excess oh. of that to excess testosterone. Now- in PCOS, we expect testosterone levels to be 90, 100, maybe 120. Mm -hmm. Above mm -hmm. 100 without being on exogenous testosterone, we need to look for like an androgen tumor. Um, sure. That's why I get so nervous when some of these, um, especially the pellet companies, are replacing testosterone in women, which I think is wonderful and it's a practice I use, but I keep them physiologic. They're to replacing them to the level of a PCOS patient or a teenage boy. And sure, their libido goes up, but there's a price to pay for that. And is that someone who's perimenopausal, even someone who is menopausal, you worry about it? So in both. I mean, I think okay. I'm not willing to take a patient above 70 you know, okay. in her serum testosterone levels with replacement, because that is as high as it ever would have been at 25 in a healthy woman okay. without PCOS. And do you look at free testosterone too? Mm -hmm. And what do you want that to be? So, well, it I look at SHBG and then, okay. you know, I, I look at the reference. It depends on the lab I send it to for All the right. reference range, but I try to keep it in the normal female physiologic range. Okay. So are you now, so do you take metformin now for life? I would expect to, yeah. Even though you're not, your ovaries aren't involved because they went night night. No, but but I was born with insulin resistance. That's not going oh. away. Wow, that is that's blowing my mind. I really thought insulin resistance. If was you a part have PCOS, you are fifty percent likely to develop type two diabetes. Fifty percent, right? right. <laughs> but because you're thin, it blows my mind that you still yeah. have to chase it. 25% of patients are thin. So I thought I was okay. I'll be honest. I thought I was okay. I was doing okay. My A1C was like 5.1. That's amazing. I was like, yeah. yay. All of a sudden, even with HRT, 
and maybe because I started replacing testosterone, my for muscle, okay? Yes. My A1C started going up, 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 oh. up. Nothing had changed in my diet. Well, maybe a little bit. You know, like we all kind of fall off a little bit. Sure. And I was like, okay. And then it got to like 5.6. One more tenth of a point. I am pre-diabetic. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, let me do my HOMA IR score, which is a ratio of your mm -hmm. insulin, fasting insulin to fasting mm -hmm. glucose level. Mm -hmm. It should be below two. Mm -hmm. Mine was 3.6. I'm like, I cannot <gasps> deny this anymore. What was okay? your fasting insulin? 14. I have to look it up. You know. It was that high? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I was like, I have a decision to make. So I got, it's on right here under my shirt. Right. I got a glucose monitor. I paid mm -hmm. out of pocket. I don't qualify for it. And I'm like, right. I'm going to be proactive with my health. And I started tracking my glucose and it blew my mind. My overnights were in the 120s. That is full diabetic range. Oh my and I'm gosh. Like, I took to the bed for two days. I cried. And I, I because I was like, <gasps> right. And I How was like, this oh be? no. Yeah. You are, you know, why do we wait until people have the disease before we intervene? I don't, I don't understand that. I think this is what I think because there's no drug that Big Pharma has created to tell us, to have us test the fasting insulin to tell, because that's the smoking gun is fasting insulin. If it comes up, there's a problem. So, and this is, I was born with a broken receptor. I can't do anything about okay. that. I've lost three brothers, okay? I don't have a surviving sibling past the age of 57. No, I'm lying. One of my brothers is 60. My two brothers that died were at 56 and 57 and the other one at 19, okay? Oh, All that makes me one, cry. Two from I'm cancer. So, one. so I am very, very serious about this. So if I get the chance to live, you know, like I don't want diabetes to take me out or right. shorten or, or make me not have a quality of life that right. I don't want. So these are the things I talk to my patients about. These are the interventions that are available. No insurance isn't covering it, but I have a, I have a budget for my health and it's, yeah. you know, insurance is made to take care of you when you're sick. That's right. Not that's to keep you well. That's exactly right. Um, so I was going to ask you if you wore the CGM and uh -huh. you do. Yeah. And still till this day. So even I though started you, about even four months you ago. Know, okay, you know what you're eating and doing every day. Do you have any hiccups alcohol, or anything now? Alcohol. Well, can't do it. Not me. I can't either. I can't and sleep. It, My blood sugars go I crazy. It's not worth it. It's over it. I'm over it. It's not worth it. I'm all about, um, I, well, I mean, I, I have the biggest bottle of Mountain Valley sparkling water you can find. But now um, I went to Trader Joe's today and they have Italian sodas that's going to be my bubble. You know, we're having guests tonight for dinner and I'll just have that and I'm fine. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can't tolerate it. And I almost had a funeral for it. RIP. I miss <laughs> Prosecco. Prosecco, I still love you. It's just, it's you not break you. Up. It is me. Yeah, like one day I was like, I think I have to break up with alcohol. <laughs> it's I know. just not. I know. I, there's no upside for me. No, you know? me neither. And there was, I mean, when did it bother me? I, it didn't in my 30s and 40s. It didn't mm -hmm. bother me. But sleep is so valuable I'm to not me. willing to sacrifice my sleep anymore. I'm, I'm not either. And so think about all those years then. You were training in medical school. You're doing your residency. Think what it did. It also probably exacerbated the situation because we know Dr. Bickman says one night of poor sleep makes you insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. Well, you're already living in insulin resistance land, and then your schedule, eating out of the vending machine, 
They brought mm-hmm. the doctor. I love it how they bring the doctors oh, a tray I, of donuts. I had um, a, my pocket always had graham crackers in the little, you know, the, from the patient. Yeah. I lived on graham crackers and peanut butter from the patient like supplies. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, I was at media morning radio, so they always brought us food in the morning. Donuts, yeah, donuts. <laughs> so once I became an intermittent faster. If they brought us a treat, I would take it and I would eat it at 1 p.m. that day. And you know what? My life is a lot better. But I was getting too little sleep. So even even if they needed me on CBS this morning, I would have to tell Gail and them, I can't do it because my sleep is too valuable. And you wonder how their sleep is. You wonder how people that, I mean, you know. any. I mean, I worked in medicine where the night shifts and the, I did 24-hour call for three years straight. You know, like that should be against the law. I, I mean, agree. we don't we don't let pilots do it. Why would I agree. We, why would let, we let anyone else? I totally agree. Okay, let's talk about some other things I've heard you say. Now, this one is a shocker, but you do or don't love dim. I don't love it. Why? Why do you love it? Because I was told I had to take it because it's broccoli in a bottle, and I, I eat pretty much a carnivore diet, and that's my one thing of broccoli. Okay. I eat the Brussels sprouts. <laughs> well, they make me toot. <laughs> <laughs> and the DIM, methane is what it is. It's making you toot. It's making them smelly. It is too. Yeah. <laughs> it's methane. So I should I should replace it then and go back to Brussels sprouts and just toot on I would eat the Brussels sprouts and the broccoli. Yeah. Because okay. they also have fiber because and other I vitamins, help- minerals, and nutrients. And what yeah. I worry about were, you know, oh, I don't need to eat my broccoli and my Brussels sprouts because I'm doing my DIM. Yeah. Okay. The studies on DIM were done on people eating a lot of Brussels sprouts and broccoli, not DIM. <laughs> oh, okay. That's good. Okay. So um, with that, let's talk about the woman who has chosen a life of no hormone replacement. Mm-hmm. Besides the fact that she's wrinkly, she aches, she has all these other risks. Mm-hmm. But why don't, you know, I don't get a commission if someone takes hormone replacement or not. Right. I just know I, better I that it's going to help them. So you so tell no, me, kind of tell me. There are people who have absolute contraindications who absolutely don't want it. Like, I respect that. That is you. Just as long as that decision is based on facts and not fear. But let's say, okay, you're right. not getting it. All right. I In the new book, The New Menopause, I go through a symptom. So we have to go symptom by symptom. There is nothing that is going to do the job of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in your body. Nothing. Okay? <laughs> I know. So now we have to look symptom by symptom. Hot flashes, night sweats, vertigo, you know, burning tongue, whatever. I have a whole list of what I could find in the literature of what supplements might help, what doctor to go to, how to talk to them about this condition being related to menopause, you know what um, exercise, what stress reduction, you know, what we know in the menopause toolkit outside of hormone therapy and other pharmacology might be helpful in those diseases. But the root cause of a lot of this exacerbation, not to say that aging can't bring on some of these diseases, of course it can, but is estrogen deprivation and fixing it is giving you back estrogen in some form that's going to make sense to your body. So if that's off the table for you, we have to, you have to work harder than everybody else. It's a fact. But what what can they do? I mean, l- lick a Dutch elm, hop on one foot. I mean, what? Where there's well, hopping only on the one magic. foot will help with osteoporosis. Shockingly, well, that's true. That's you true. know, I yeah. you really have to go symptom by symptom. It's much harder okay. for you. It is much harder to stay healthy. I, I, 
I saw a woman yesterday who uh, works in media and I hadn't seen her in a while. And, and I walked over to her and she was like, I can't turn my neck. I have a crick in my neck. And she's probably about 65 and I'm 61. And she said, you know, when you're old, you ache and all. And I went, no, I really don't. <laughs> and I didn't mean to sound smug, but I, I mean, I really didn't answer. I know it was rhetorical, but the, the answer is not if you have hormone replacement. I don't have any aches and pains unless I have gluten. And then, but that's the penalty I pay with, mm -hmm. I get hip bursitis. So my doctor, what, my, my son's a physician assistant in ortho. So he's like, yeah, uh, we see women with that in their fifties and sixties. <laughs> right. And so I, I said, tell them to stay off gluten and see if they still get it. So if I, if I know the offending substance, then I've made the choice to suffer that night. But there's just a lot of things I don't have that my peers have because I'm singing with hormone replacement. So estrogen, as it turns out, is better at keeping a cell healthy and non-inflamed than stopping that process once it gets started. And the longer your body is without estrogen, the more likely you are to have these inflammatory conditions. So can they at 60 or 65 start hormone replacement therapy if, if yes. they their menses ended yes. in their 40s or 50s? So okay. The longer your body goes, so the studies were done for 10 years up to age 60, and then they stopped right, the study, thought. right? Mm -hmm. um, well, and so what we, what, here's what we know. Estrogen, again, better at prevention than cure. It's protective against cardiovascular disease. So the right. big two things are cardiovascular disease and neurodementia. And within five years of your menopause for dementia and 10 years for cardiovascular disease. What I tell patients is we may have lost that benefit, but it's probably for cardiovascular disease prevention, um, but you will still have better bones, a better general urinary system, better brain, be you know, better, better thought process. You know, um, If you have existing coronary artery disease like calcified plaques, certain types of estrogen may make this worse. So oh. I have them get calcium cardiac the scores if they're yeah. in their 60s and they have, you know, risk factors, if their cholesterol is high or whatever, we either they come in with their score to show me, okay, I'm yeah. clean. These mm -hmm. look good. I mean, all mm -hmm. these look good. I'm like, okay, I'm not worried about making this worse. Certainly if they're on the path to Alzheimer's, they're not a candidate. It looks like in certain patients who have advanced disease, estrogen may be harmful. Much better at prevention than cure. Okay. All right. It, case by case. Mm-hmm. Like case by case. I have lots of patients on their 60s, but I have some who we've decided as a team that this is not in your best interest, you know, given what's going to keep you up at night, your fear of, you know, yes. someone who has, you know, for example, I had a patient who's 59, but she'd been menopausal since like mid 40s. So she'd long time, never, yeah. you know, was scared to death of hormone therapy. No one ever offered it to her. So here she oh. is 12 years without it. And her mother had horrible dementia. And oh. You know, so in her particular situation, probably, you know, as far as we understand the data right now, probably not in her best interest. So we're hitting all the other things. So there's some really exciting research coming out on the FSH level. So I'm starting mm -hmm. to track that, oh. especially if, well, if, if they are still symptomatic and I'm giving them X, Y, and Z, I'm checking a serum level to make sure they're absorbing because we may to you need a different vehicle, okay. right? Right. Okay. But now it's like their hot flashes are good, but their cholesterol is going back up. Great right. study looking at FSH levels in cholesterol. So FSH, remember, is made in the pituitary gland. 
from GnRH in the hypothalamus. And it basically is trying to get the ovary to make more estrogen. The ovaries have died, right? Right. And so the brain is not registering that you have enough estrogen. And some scientists think it's the FSH that is driving the elevations of cholesterol, not the estrogen deprivation. So for my patients whose cholesterols are not rebounding with HT, I'm sending an FSH and I'm a little bit shocked. So I'm trying, and then I'm up, upping their dose till we can get their FSHs down. Didn't even think FSH was a player anymore because of I didn't either. But these, the this new, and then all of a sudden, so that's the hepatologist talking about it, and then you know, oh. no one in OB/GYN okay. is talking about this in the literature. They're still talking about babies, which is fine. Yeah, that's, but that's true. Yeah, you know, um, which is important. But like menopause just gets left on the. But all of a sudden, it's really cool because the explosive literature in menopause is coming out from the cardiologist, from the hepatologist, from the orthopedist. From the, not from OB-GYN. Okay. Then when are they going to start teaching it in medical school? I am doing my damnedest. I've got four appointments to fly around and go, <laughs> to go on my own dime to go teach residents what Is I know. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Wh- why wouldn't it be a part of the curriculum? Because it's inevitable. You Women know, are going to, their ovaries are going to fail. You tell me. Why? Okay. You know, there's societal reasons. There's this whole yep. medical history of, of women's health just being secondary to yep. men's health. We yep. haven't, you know, the research funding is heavily, heavily, heavily for uh, obstetrics and OB-GYN. Yep. All yep. these machines have been built around generating research around OB, which is great, even though we're really not improving the maternal health in this country, though we're spending billions of dollars on it. Yeah. You know, and wh- I feel like what I'm doing is not rocket science. I'm not trying to get you 1% healthier, right? As a lot of this, you know, I mean, I love Peter Atiyah. I love him. But like, you know, he's really trying to get healthy people 5% healthier, right? And I'm just trying he's to obnoxious. get women up yeah. to uh, anything. They're getting nothing. Yeah. They're getting left behind. Simply because we have ovaries. And I'm like, medicine, we have got to catch up. So, I mean, the talk is there. We just had a bill signed. Like, things are happening. But we are a generation away from large-scale, like, acceptance of menopause as medicine. Well, now it's, be- thankfully, to s- social media, it's mm-hmm. being talked about. Lisa Rinna was on the, I just saw on social Everybody. media. She's six- Everybody's waving yeah. their menopause flag, and I am here for it. Right. All these companies are popping up. I'm like, bring them. Good. You know? Good. So when you run from off- for office, will it be from <laughs> as the representative from Galveston or will you go back over to Lafayette? I don't think I could run for office in Texas. No why? Would, it's Texas. You know why? Because you're a truth teller. So I, I, you know, people, it's really cool because menopause is not, drawing party lines. It's everybody. That's right. I get full support from both sides of the aisle and then in the intermediates. It's everyone. So maybe I would, I love Texas. I live here. I raise my babies here. They're Texans, you know, like I love it. Little tough when you're a gynecologist here. (laughs) Um, I'm sure. So, but you know, it's my choice to live here. I could live anywhere right now. And well, you do amazing work. You are such a proponent for women. We thank you. My dead uterus and ovaries, my dead <laughs> ovaries, thank you. My sagging boobs, thank you. But you know, my skin looks good because mm-hmm. I'm on hormone replacement therapy. 
It does. And it's it's things like that that people ask me. They're like, why does your skin look good? Now I've had lasers and stuff, but part of it is rejuvenating my hormones of my youth that keep my hair in good shape and my skin in good shape. And so 30% of our collagen declines in the first five years of menopause, we lose it. Oh, well, there you go. That, if nothing else gets people to consider hormone therapy, it's going to yeah. be that. Yeah. That and painful sex. That's another oh, thing oh. that a lot of people will say. Painful sex is what mm-hmm. made them think, I've got to do something about this. I tell you what my big symptom is when I feel like my estradiol starts getting wonky is peeing in the middle of the night again. Mm. Mm-hmm. And not much pee comes out. Or sometimes- Right. I, it's just irritation. Out. But yes, it is so irritating. So are you doing just, vaginal estrogen? No, I'm doing the one you don't like, the pellet. Oh, well, just add, that's fine. I don't care. Um, just add, just, you know, watch your testosterone levels. Don't let them overdose you. Um, no, I can't do testosterone pellet because it uh, full-grown beard, acne. Okay. So you're doing I, estrogen in a pellet. That's fine. Just yeah. vaginal estrogen, you probably just need a little extra boost down there. A vaginal okay. estrogen cream. Just ask your doctor and that will okay. take, take the irritation right away without having to go so high systemically. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Here's my testosterone. I even keep it besides my podcast. Oh, table. so Just you do the, yeah, that's what I prescribe for my patients. For that and mm-hmm. progesterone. I've been doing progesterone because of those, um, I was getting up at 345 to be on the radio, mm-hmm. but on my own, I would wake up at 3 a.m. You know, wide awake, you know, back when I was in my 40s and my husband would go, well, what's 45 minutes? I'd go, everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. And so that's when I was, I first got with the functional medicine or a nurse practitioner who said, let's start doing progesterone mm-hmm. and it's nature's sleep aid. I mean, uh, I love progesterone. it. I love it. Yeah. And I'm, you know, when I put patients on it, I do it every day. I don't do cyclical because of the sleep benefits. I'm okay, like, why should you gonna... only sleep two weeks out of the month? Okay. I was going to ask you, well, I heard Deb Matthew say, take the five days off to mimic your cycle. You don't even do that. You don't need a period. Why would you have a period if you didn't have to have one? Like come to me, mama here, then Right there. It's going to be every night. I was taking the five nights off. Mm-hmm. Can you get too much progesterone, do you think? Uh, I don't know of any progesterone okay. toxicity. So it's fine. It It is wonderful in the sleep aid department. In the, in the prometrium, because of the, some people might get, a, you know, it's sedating, which is why it helps with sleep and it helps relax. So some people, not everyone tolerates progesterone. So let me say that. It's not oh, toxicity. Okay. It's just intolerance. Okay. And so- <laughs> You will see some people are really groggy and and too sedate. Like oh. the next day, they can't wake up. So yeah. that no. would be a sign to back off. Well, chef's kiss to you now that you're culinary medicine, MD, PhD, DDS. <laughs> no PhD, just MD. Well, you have every other, I'm sure. <laughs> I do. It, yeah. yeah. School training and a little star by your name. Thanks for what you do. And uh, you're a star. And oh, I really well, appreciate you. you being on my podcast. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.